Hello, and welcome to a much belated brand new episode of Invasion of the Podcasters. We are back, finally, with some regular programming after, gosh, how many months? Six? Seven? I don't know. It's been a while. <laughs> uh, Simon is hosting this week. Uh, Graham, unfortunately, cannot be here uh, because of baby stuff. Elliot's still doing really well, but Graham has to be a really good dad, of course. Um, so here I am being the master of ceremonies this week. I am your fella who looks at BFI player movie other stuff. Gosh, you see, I've forgotten already. Shudder as well. Shudder's made a reappearance this week. Uh, basically the more niche streaming services that you might come across. Also with me, as always, we have Scott. Scott here. Hi, guys. Simon looks after the niche while I look after the mainstream, i.e. Amazon and Netflix. And also the uh, the Switzerland of uh, of our podcast Disney Plus, which Graham also uh, doubles in. And so does Laura, and Laura's also here. Good evening, all. How are we? All right. How are you? Very glad to be back, gents. Very glad to be back. I've missed your crack. <laughs> Likewise. Um, actually, hang on a minute. Do you have a niche yet, Laura? Oh. You kind of fell in for Graham's niche a bit, like originally, but I don't know. You're kind of like a master of. Master of all, master yes. of none. A finger in many pies. Uh, many fingers in many pies. Indeed. Your whole hand in the pies. Nice, nice graphic image to start with, and let's let's keep in that vein, really. I guess what we should start with this episode is the thing that everybody's been talking about. I mean, you know, it's 9th of April at the moment. Not so long ago, since the 2022 Oscars, it was fun, right? For all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I'm still speechless about the use of Toto's Africa. Oh yeah, can you give us a bit of context for that? Because I I, I remember being a bit like, oh, that's a bit dodgy. <laughs> right. Well, like the spectacularly shallow person I am, one of my great joys of the Oscars is uh, people bringing it aesthetically. And I've noticed in recent years, Daniel Kaluuya um, always looks magnificent. I wasn't awake for the Oscars this time, but his mentions were the first thing I searched the next day. Apparently, he arrived on stage to present an award, and uh, yes, that was the walk-up music of choice. And uh, as you can imagine, that went down like the cup of proverbial cold sick. <laughs> but... Not Spike Lee's cup of tea, really. Absolutely not. But what would you introduce Daniel Kaluuya with? What is magnificent enough? Oh, gosh. Baker Street? I don't know. I think the Larby Sifri song, I Got There, which Eminem sampled the for My Name Is, which is famously played by Chaz and Dave. Ah, is is that the one that is in Bagman in Better Call Saul? Absolutely. The ah, very you see, same. You see, I watched that episode for the first time recently and I was waiting for Eminem to start rapping and then it never came and I went, of course it's a sample. Of course it's a sample. <laughs> you uneducated swine, Simon. <laughs> but Scott... I believe uh, you have a little bit of an opinion on the on the major event of the night, which sort of like hijacked the whole proceedings, right? I, I know, uh, Coda, amazing. Um, <laughs> no, um, yeah. Well, actually, no. Let's talk about that though, because that is really interesting. Because that was not being pipped at all for being a best picture. When I, I remember when I looked at the. At all the nominations, and I went, oh, okay, that that kind of looks like a little placeholder to sort of bring it up to ten, but uh, there you go, bit of a blindsider, but no, I know what you're on about. Go on. <laughs> well, I, th I think we've seen that uh, the the world has been united in its uh, shock about uh, about this, haven't they? Um, I, th I think maybe it's a bit overblown in some ways. Considering there's uh, something far more. Uh, Important going on in the world today. Obviously, we all know about that. But uh, yeah, I, th I think uh, it's been dealt with in a 
in the appropriate way, I think. Obviously, uh, Will Smith had already resigned from the Oscars, um, from the Academy, should I say. In in Bantam from the Oscars for 10 years, I think they sent out that they were um, unimpressed by his conduct, uh, should we say. But, but uh, they weren't unimpressed enough to kind of really ask him to leave. He was asked to leave and he said, no, I'm not. I might win an Oscar in 15 yeah. minutes. And then... I mean, I, I, I was sort of being sarcastic and downplaying it, but uh, in a way I'm, I'm actually <laughs> right. Yeah, you, yeah, 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 right. They, they were just unimpressed. But uh, I mean, because Chris Rock doesn't want to press charges, there's no uh, criminal uh, matter no. uh, in American terms. So uh, obviously the joke was, somebody else saying the joke was obviously uh, inappropriate, but... Uh, if you had to put someone in the in a supermarket and punch them, you'd you'd get arrested. So no matter what they said. Well, so, yeah, uh, and also the Oscars is a roast. You know what I mean? Maybe it was a little more over the line than what a lot of other people had been saying that night. But you know, <laughs> it is what it is. It's, I think it's a, I think next year yeah. they should get Ricky Gervais in. <laughs> <laughs> Bring him back. Just say Although, did, who they're going to. the Oscars. I Did didn't don't think, think so. Did. Didn't he so, do the Emmys? The Globes. Or the Golden, yeah, Golden Globes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's not going back to that. So, uh, yeah, I think they should uh, see who else can be provoked into punching people. <laughs> I think it's going to get a whole lot safer from here on in, unfortunately. Um, yeah, they're not going to have any comedy. Well, I think if, if you're talking about comedians getting punched and all that, I think there's far more uh, worthy jokes of that. Um but, you know, it's a roast, like I say. Comedy is, is roasting in general, so uh, I don't think people should really take it too seriously unless people are actually getting hurt. But, you know, what do you think, Laura? I'm just remembering when I was about nine, they uh, there was a performance of, um, I think, Proud Mary with Snow White and Rob Lowe at the Oscars. So right. this would have been what eighty seven, eighty eight. I'm just the evolution of the Oscars in my lifetime. That's what I was just pondering. Yeah, it's you know it's this big vacuous nonsense every year. I'm was much less invested this year, but I can't mm-hmm. particularly put my finger on why. Um, I think it's because because all our kind of collective favourite films of the year were all the ones that were genuinely daring and wouldn't even stand a chance of getting nominated for an Oscar, so... Well, this, this you know is what true. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I notice at the moment the iPlayer has a season of Oscar films and there's a mm-hmm. load that have just... I've never cared enough. Things like Green Book. You know, mm-hmm. I, I will find a hundred minutes for it one day, I'm sure, but... Um, it's yeah. grossly longer than that. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> the dreaded one thirty, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, I remember leaving a sort of preview of Parasite a week before it was due to come out and explaining to my kid, who I guess was 15 at the time, this was about a month before COVID happened, that the Palm Door was a much better barometer of a cool and interesting film. And yeah, that well, that's absolutely the case, isn't it? You're not necessarily going to find the most compelling and interesting thing of the year there. I think somebody said it's not the best acting, it's the most acting. The most acting, indeed. But then again, Jared Leto didn't even get anywhere near a nomination this year, so I think he went beyond his own Rubicon (laughs) with that one. (laughs) I wish you could include the Oscars on a a positive note by mentioning the humorous uh, thing that's happened there, which is uh, to David Niven in about uh, 1970-something. This. yeah. The man with his shortcomings. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That, that was a, that, that's my uh, favourite Oscars moment um, <laughs> back uh, 50 years. Uh, I, I, w- I would say, I'd say go on YouTube and seek it out because it's, uh, it's hilarious. Some good British humour from David Niven there. <laughs> Mine is David Lynch receiving his and telling him he had a very interesting face. <laughs> <laughs> that was lovely. Uh, speaking of Lynch... Actually, we might have, uh, you know, uh, Laura's doing a, you know, um, man from another place, uh, palm rope here. So very, very on brand. Uh, yeah. So there's been a rumor, a tweet from a certain someone. I can't remember the source who it was, but they basically implied that 
a great American filmmaker who's directed a lot of great American films and also two amazing TV shows is going to have a secret movie debuting this year at Cannes. And if it's not David Lynch, I think I'm going to cry. I mean, Perhaps. who else? Cross <laughs> is that TV. Well, yeah, exactly. I was, we, I was, yeah, sorry, go on. We are almost certain of another magnificent white-haired David at Cannes, though, aren't we? Of oh, Cronenberg, yes. Crimes of the Future. Yes, indeed. Did you ever see the original Crimes of the Future that he did? Mm. It's one of his odd student shorts. Kind of incredibly boring, but there's a lot of like interesting ideas in there, like, like he always has. I just hope it's not too tied to what it originally was. I hope it's evolved a bit more in the 50 years since its inception. It's quite terrifying to think of something rattling around somebody's head for 50 years, isn't it? <laughs> and um, finally, new Ari Aster, isn't there? Disappointment Boulevard. No, oh, yeah. Is it so, still supposed to be four hours? Uh, that was the last tattle I heard. Honestly, it might be Pleasant Surprise Boulevard for me, but mm. I have uh, absolutely no expectations because I think the fundamental problem with his scripts in general is that he just grossly disrespects his characters and uses them as pawns in some sort of like kind of funny but ultimately kind of dumb sadistic game. Mm. Um, if you've ever seen The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which is his deliberately provocative student short which i'm not even going to describe what the concept of it is on the on the show because you know i think it works best if you just go in and go oh my god they made a movie out mm. of that idea uh, <laughs> um you know that's that's just like sums up my problem with with his films but you know i will i will always watch them i've seen both hereditary and midsummer twice Against my better judgment, so <laughs> they stick with me, but I don't like them. Is there anything in your picks this week, Scott, that's going to stick with me and I'm not going to like it? Um, hmm. It looks, it looks pretty uh, kosher to me. Uh, <laughs> I, maybe Joker. Wraith. I don't know how you feel about Joker. Oh, yeah, no. So yeah, like, similar. Mm, mm, okay, <laughs> there we go. Well, do you want to launch into uh, what you have to offer this week then? So we've talked about uh, some of coming back after a, quite a long absence in our podcast. Another one that's coming back shortly is Better Call Saul. I mean, how excited are we all on uh, Netflix. about that? On Netflix, absolutely. Very, um, very excited. Only, Spectacularly. Yes, coming on only a day after America uh, on the 19th of April which is uh, 10 days from when we were recording on the 9th of April, in terms of when we actually put this out, not sure, probably a few days' time. Uh, and then that's the first seven episodes uh, beginning then, and then the second six, the final six of the uh, the great show uh, are coming on the 12th of July. I've, I've, I've assumed that because it's 11th of July in America, and as with all the other seasons, it will presumably be the next day here in the UK. The reason they've done this is so they can enter it into two Emmy ceremonies. Probably won't help because the Emmys are, for some bizarre reason, completely, well, failing to acknowledge it properly. Um, I must say I'm, I am tremendously excited for Four Better Call Saul. I think it's an opportunity for it to cement itself as one of the all-time great TV shows. Dare I say it, maybe even getting as good, if not better, than Breaking Bad. Uh, though I, I, do, I don't want to uh, induce a riot, so um, we'll just say <laughs> it's a possibility. Yeah, I think I think you're barking up the right tree here. I think it's a very different show, and it's definitely one that it took me a while to love. I think it was only from like the end half of well, moments of three, I'd say, and then towards the end of half of season four through to all of season five. That was when I it really sort of kicked into gear for me because all that kind of slow, subtle writing just keeps moving in circles until it becomes absolutely unbearable when you realise the journey that Saul or um, Jimmy McGill is going on is probably going to come to an end. <laughs> and we don't like the way that that goes now, do we? Um, I really hope, actually, that they do end uh, his flash-forward um, plotline with its own episode, because obviously every season's opened up with a uh, few scenes from what Saul is doing after 
Breaking Bad. Um, and yeah, I think it would be a nice touch if once they rounded off the past narrative, they gave some like significant time to the to the future one. I think that would be really nice. It's its own El Camino, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Better Call Saul has uh, built its its own esteem, as it was, as it's. Uh, mm-hmm. As Gwyneth Paltrow would say, it's they're uh, consciously uncoupled uh, from each other, so uh, it's now its own series, and uh, yeah, it's uh, really standing out on its own. It uh, left the family home to get its own, uh, to make its own roost, and it's uh, d- d- done so very well. It's uh, it's got a nice house of its own now, nice nice mm-hmm. career, pets and uh, children and all that. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's I'm ju- I'm just so excited and I can't wait to uh, discuss it. Um, well, in September when it's all done, I'm sure we'll have a uh, quite a lot to say about it uh, come that time. I reckon so. I've been rewatching it as well, and it really there's a scene I think maybe in the second series where he's trying to sabotage his job at Davis and Maine, and there's this amazing montage of him trying on various different suits and shirt sleeves and things intercut with footage of this 20 foot high inflatable cowboy it made me think of the trailer for jordan peele's nope and those freaky giant hands um it's beautiful and seeing it again made me think did uh jordan peele nab the idea from there it's just perfectly shot it's such a handsome show everything Mm -hmm. is a pleasure to look at But I found I was much more immediately hooked the second time. I was struck by how consistently excellent it was. I don't remember it going in like that the first time. Mm -hmm. I would be interested to rewatch to to see if it landed differently, knowing where it's going. Mm, Yeah, yeah, just beautiful, perfect TV. But... We have three things coming back in the same week. Isn't that typical? You know, nine months of nothing and then three perfect shows in the same week. What are the other two? Russian Doll returns oh, to Netflix yes. mm-hmm. and Inside Number Nine on BBC Oh, two. quality. Mm. Your fave. Mm. <laughs> nice. Excellent. Any movies in there, Scott? That's the only TV show uh, I've got. Um... Well, there's another one here that's um, sort of an outlier from the others. On Netflix, there is a, a show called Springsteen on Broadway, which is um, an at-home version of, a, of the presumably expensive show uh, Springsteen put on on Broadway pre-COVID. I think, I think it was 20, 2018 or 2019. And it's, a, it's an intimate look at uh, his, his life. It's him uh, basically uh, speaking about his upbringing, uh, his parents, um, growing up in, in New Jersey, uh, and then forming early bands, uh, his early inspirations, and just speaks on it quite. Uh, it's, it's quite emotional at times because he uh, speaks about um, th- there was a band in his hometown who he, who was inspired by, and they'd uh, some them had gone to Vietnam, uh, two of whom died, and that band was subsequently no more. Bruce Springsteen speaks uh, very eloquently about that, about uh, inspiration of his that the public conscience is, isn't aware of as such. I might think of more uh, high-profile people, Bob Dylan, I don't know, who might have been inspired by, but it turns out it's someone uh, local who inspired him to pick up the guitar. He, do, he doesn't uh, choose to, to uh, perform um, the most high-profile hits, though he does some. Uh, Dancing in the Dark, for example, is in there. There are a lot of uh, deep cuts from his uh, from his albums. Um, so it's not, it's not a populist uh, kind of uh, vibe he was going for. It's more of a for-the-fans kind of thing. Obviously, he has a massive devoted following worldwide, um, and a lot of their f- fanatics really who uh, who would follow him to the ends of the earth to watch him perform. People literally do might go to Australia, the UK, then America. I don't know, go all over the place just to uh, just to follow him. It's really worth a watch. Um, two and a half hours long, um, give or take. So uh, quite quite Lots a lot. on. Yeah, absolutely. Because he does go in deep on his uh, on his upbringing in particular. You learn a lot about him. About uh, what what formed uh, the great musician we know today, and I, th- I think even if you're not a Springsteen fan, if you're just a music fan, you will get a lot from this. I think it informs a lot of what uh, makes a musician um, become a musician and what inspires them to to perform what they perform and so on and so forth. Are either of you into Springsteen? Is this is this something that interests yourselves? So mildly. so mildly. Yeah, I I like. 
listening to him I, I don't go out my way to but when I hear him I'm like oh cool yeah. I have love I'm not rabidly enthusiastic mm-hmm. but I do have love when I right. found out he'd written Patty Smith's Because of the Night <laughs> I started to view him in a slightly swoony light <laughs> yeah I mean I would absolutely recommend you to, to watch this if just just generally as music fans uh, I'd say the most poignant part is uh, the mention of, of Clarence Clemens, who was a long t- long-time uh, saxophonist in the A Street Band, who uh, sadly passed away in 2013, I believe, and uh, obviously a very close friend of Bruce Springsteen, and that shows in this. He's he's very emotional when he mentions them, and it's, I felt emotional watching it, just the way he was, the genuine emotion. It's just uh, very touching. Now, on the films I've got this week... Obviously, we've had a long time uh, since uh, the last episode, so some of these things, some good things here that have uh, come on to Netflix and Amazon recently, and Disney Plus on, on one of these. Uh, we've got Spider-Man, which I think I mentioned uh, maybe last episode or the episode before. This is a 2002 one that kicked it all off, well, for the first time. Uh, this the Sam Raimi one, which I, th- I saw this a long time ago, very long time ago, and I, I was quite surprised by how, how good it is. I think aside from the latest uh, Spider-Man, um, I think it's the best to date. Um, and in fact, I'm not sure. I think this one might actually be the best one because I, I think it's just a pure uh, superhero film for the time it was released. I think I think it's aged incredibly well. Still, uh, superhero films I think would age do age very very quickly if they're not good enough or if there's something about them that dates them severely. But mm-hmm. I think this is a very pure uh, film. Uh, it's, it's a, it seems like a very pure Spider-Man origin story, um, without being too um, bloated. I think Tobey Maguire is excellent as uh, as Spider-Man, Peter Parker. I was quite su- quite quite surprised how much I liked it because, um, yeah, I think it's everything a superhero film should be. It's not too much to it. It does just what it needs to do, really. And I think Willem Dafoe, as always, is a great uh, villain. Albeit a troubled one here. Um, perhaps, uh, <laughs> you could, you yeah, could troubled see. in the same way that Gollum is troubled. <laughs> yeah. But again, I, I understand things. But uh, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I think by your reaction, Simon, you, you agree. Oh, yeah, I think it's a great film. Um, I, I did watch it again before No Way Home came out. And there's just something so refreshing about how it's paced and structured. Like, the fact that you almost kind of forget about the Green Goblin for ages in the film, only for him to kind of drop back in for the finale. It's like, it doesn't really matter because it's a movie about Spider-Man and you really get to know that, like, interior life of the the, the nerd and also the superhero, and I think that's that's lovely. And also, like, Sam Raimi can direct the hell out of anything, so it's just visually snappy, the set pieces are great, uh, very eccentric choices all around particularly from Defoe who thankfully was allowed to do the exact same thing in in No Way Home um comfortably one of the highlights of that one for me as well so when is he not though really he's great isn't he mm. he is great protect him at all costs unless he's, he's playing villains in a film uh, in which case you know it, we must protect him even him. more because it's yeah. it's, it's what he <laughs> It's what he does, mm. pal. It's what yeah, he, does. he does it so well. He does it so well. That's Sam Raimi in comic books, though. Just oh. perfection, surely. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of love for Darkman here as well. so We certainly do. We certainly mm-hmm. do. Um, yeah, I mean, so, what, are we about six weeks away from Multiverse of Madness now? Less? So, yeah, sorry to hijack, Scott. Just couldn't let that one Please go. Please do. Please do. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're going to get the proper comic panels up on the screen, aren't we, with Sam? Yeah. So, yeah. Bit of really dodgy CGI in the trailer, though, in the new trailer anyway. <laughs> At least with the... Uh you know, Evil Stranger's third eye, I was like, what the hell is that? That looks unfinished. <laughs> but that's sort of the point. You know what I mean? A little bit of ropey CGI in a Sam Raimi movie's not really a, a foreign thing. Have the two of you seen the quotes that have been emerging this week? It was an interview with somebody and he said, I saw like four Marvel movies before doing this one. Just four. Yeah, just four. Is that thirty nice. odd now? <laughs> it's just like, yes, go off, Sam. Go off, King. <laughs> well, he said he would do another one if he was invited back. Said said it was like the world's best toy box or something. 
which is quite nice, isn't it? Yes. Especially after Scott Derrickson left the project and, you know, after creative differences and he sounded quite bitter about it. But mm. I'm, I'm glad we got Raimi, really. This talk of uh, superheroes and Marvel in particular has just reminded us that uh, Jessica Jones has moved to Disney Plus now. So that uh, migration. With Daredevil and Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Uh, uh, yeah, let's not mention Iron <laughs> Fist uh, too, uh, too much. <laughs> But yeah, um, that was expected really when you they were going to move over when contracts were expiring. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's all getting coming in-house to Disney Plus now. And um, again, another superhero thing, moving over to DC. I know you were, so there's some consternation from you, Simon, mentioned Joker, uh, which mm-hmm. is coming to Netflix later this month. So yeah, we'll, uh, we'll move on from that. Just I mean, <laughs> It's currently on Prime though, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's I, I think so much on there. From that, one to the uh, other. Yeah, there's mm. so much on Prime. It's hard to keep track. Um, it's so in depth. Um, Drops on Netflix. I, I don't really feel I have to go into too much detail on that. I think virtually everyone's seen it. I was at least aware of it. I think we probably discussed it when it was coming out as well. Did we? I don't know. What, what Joker? Yeah. Did we? Yeah, yeah. We've, we've discussed it a few we've, times. We've, but we've it's... discussed it. It's just one of those things where I feel like my criticism of it is the criticism that everybody else says about it. Mm. It's like, well, it's just Taxi Mm. Driver. But I also don't think inherently you should be making a movie humanising the Joker, at least to that degree. I think it's a dumb move. It's it's like, I watched the the Leatherface prequel recently, you know, trying to put a psychology on Leatherface and all that. And, oh God, I I just wanted to to pass out. (laughs) What next? Something about how Shipman loving animals when he was a kid? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Get it written. Get yeah, it written. Yeah, um, someone would, some studio would buy it. Uh, maybe sell it to some Americans who haven't heard of him. Say, oh, he's one of, uh, one of Britain's favourite doctors. <laughs> anyway. He's our Doctor House. <laughs> yes, quite, uh, quite right. Quite right. Uh, yeah, so drop us on Netflix. I'm going to move on now. Uh, this isn't a, a true crime p- podcast. If you're on Amazon Prime, uh, I'm just going to briefly skim over these. We've got uh, Buster Keaton's 1926 film, The General, which uh, I saw at the Trainside Cinema uh, probably five or six years ago, maybe. Um, I'll be watching that again and reporting back. Ad Astra from 2019, from uh, James Gray, who did Lost City of Z, or Z, depending on which uh, country you're you're in. Um, so 2019, and it features Brad Pitt, and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I it's think, a very underrated yeah, movie. Absolutely, underrated. it is underrated. Absolutely, and it looks great. I mean, I mean, it's it's uh, set out of space, so I mean, if it's not looking great, I mean, come on. It's a really come well deployed on. budget, though. I mean, it, yeah. it wasn't. I mean, I'm just gonna have a quick look here, but like, I've got a feeling it wasn't that expensive. Let's have a look. Ad Astra budget. What does it say? Ew, okay, 82, 100 million. So there. Yeah, yeah. Not, For what not, it is. Not everyone's Christopher Nolan. Not everyone can just have all, all the money in the world to make a film. Yeah. Again, I'll watch, I'll, I'll watch it a second time at home and I'll see how it, how it uh, stacks up. And I'll report back. Um, the delightful Amelie is, on, uh, is coming to Netflix. The Great Thousand One French film. Probably one of the great, uh, one of the most acclaimed uh, French films of the 21st century. I think that's well, that's obvious. Um, Audrey Tautou being delightful, and yeah, this is just a such a wholesome film. We've uh, we've mentioned wholesome films before on a previous episode, and uh, this is probably the ultimate one. I would say, just in terms of oh, isn't that cute? It's cute. Isn't yeah. it lovely? Isn't it? Lovely? It's too long, is what it is. But yeah, it's mm. cute. <laughs> it's cute. It's cute. And uh, finally, one, one that I think is uh, underappreciated, uh, overlooked in relation to the director's other films, is uh, Seven Psychopaths, which is uh, on Disney Plus um, by Martin McDonough. Obviously, In Bruges is the one that uh, I think is everyone thinks is the best because it is. It is the best, his best one. Uh, seven billboards is probably the most high profile. I would say. I think it's probably three billboards. Yeah. What did I say? Seven billboards. <laughs> it it oh, wouldn't be as fun mm. if there were only three psychopaths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I did. I got them mixed up. Um, <laughs> yeah. Seven psychopaths outside Bill and Missouri. 
<laughs> I'm quite Bill Missouri now. Now that you know. is a crossover. Yes, it would be. It would be interesting. It would be interesting. But I really rate her Seven Psychopaths. It's in my club of uh, nine out of ten films that can't quite be be ten out of ten films, which is uh, it's not really an insult. I wouldn't say. I think nine out of ten is a very good score, but I just find the the humour very, very engaging and very um, appealing. Again, I think in Bruce perfects it, but Seven Psychopaths does it very well, very well also. Christopher Walken, I think, is absolutely exceptional in this with his cravat. He's like, no, yeah. no. I'm not no, going to put my hands up for you, Mister. Yeah, I'm not I think he's, uh, yeah. He's we'll cover Christopher Walken a little bit later on the show as well. So oh, great. He's, he's going to be a featured guest here. Never get enough Christopher Walken, really, can you? Uh, Absolutely not. What what a hero! I've, I've mentioned Willem Dafoe and um, Christopher Walken, so that's yeah. It's, it, it, it's a good podcast it's for cheekbones. It's a good combo. It's a good. And combo. I'll be mentioning Michael Shannon in a bit, so there you go. Oh, there you go. I mean, everyone's favourite. We've got the whole whole set. Like uh, the, the, the stickers when there's a uh, World Cup. Lovely. <laughs> the holy trinity of jawlines. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, that's me done. I will leave you on such a, a positive and upbeat note, and oh, we'll move well, on nice. to Simon. Well, yeah, um, we can do, we can do, but I was wanting to talk about um, the suggestions that we had from our listeners first, because I, f- ah. I feel like it's it's been long overdue that we've acknowledged them. Mm. Um, one of our points in the last episode, the interview special that we had with Gabriel Brown on his feature film, Finding Your True Self, was uh, movies that are set in the northeast of England, or at least filmed here. Um, and we just wanted to kind of draw a little bit of a highlight over some of uh, people's favourites and, you know, maybe gather together some ideas for what stories should be set here and what people want to see from from our region. So we had a bunch of uh, underrated suggestions from a few people. We actually had two mentions for Goal the Dream Begins. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from uh, Ryan and Benj. Amen, I agree. Amen. That was my uh, suggestion also. Is there uh, a, a player for the Newcastle young team called Santiago Munez now? Well, uh, the, the the player in the, the character in the film is called Munoz, no, Munez, sorry, and the, uh, the player for under-23s is called Munoz. Oh well, so entirely there's a different. slight variation, but uh, obviously, well, I mean, it, it's a, it's a different name, so it's quite a big variation. But uh, it's a lovely just coincidence. One it is a lovely coincidence, <laughs> and he he's also Mexican, so as the character is uh, supposed to be, which is mm, indeed. I mean, I mean, there has to be a conspiracy theory that uh, they only signed him for the name. <laughs> I, 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 I well, you think would it's a big, though, right? It's not a big stretch. If if, if you, you had the opportunity, you would. If you had the opportunity, yeah, yeah. The thing is about Goal, though, one thing that always annoyed me about it was that Stephen Delane gets this whole sort of, like, exposition monologue when Santiago's coming into Newcastle, you know, across the Tyne Bridge and all that. So Stephen Delane's saying, like, oh, well, you know, all around the country you've got these rivalries. You've got, you know, Man City, Man U in London. You've got all these. uh, But up here, it's just Newcastle. And I'm like, excuse me, what is this Sunderland erasure? Who? What's going on here? And also, big continuity error here. Apparently, Santiago has a Sunderland strip in his room in the first 10 minutes of the film. So, whoever was researching continuity on that film, what were you doing? Mm. Sunder who? Oh, get lost. (laughs) I haven't heard of them, sorry. (laughs) On to some actual sort of... uh, you know, more sincere movie set in the northeast. Uh, we had a couple of suggestions for I, Daniel Blake as well. We had Jack and Benj saying that. We had a bunch of puns as well from a few people. <laughs> um, so Jamie, who is the composer of our wonderful theme tune, said Geordie Heat. Look at me T-shirt that I'm wearing here, guys. Geordie Heat from Atletico Mints. Crime on the Tyne. Hot Geordie Nights. Geordie Streets for the crime, you know, all that. Uh, we had Weir Side Story. 
Uh, Turner and seven bottles of hooch. Yeah. Classy. Uh, Big, but with an extra G, as in market. (laughs) Star Wars, a new Westerhope. (laughs) And Turtle Recall. Uh, and also, John, John gave my favourite suggestion here. Anything starring Orson Ben Wills. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you for those there, guys. Oh, also, sorry, Alex, uh, who's one of my filmmaking pals, did contribute with Immortals by Christopher J. Orr. And if you've ever wanted to see your boy here uh, shirtless and uh, fighting uh, on, the, on the town moor on, on Golden Hour, uh, then you can watch that if you seek it out. And uh, yeah, I, I, I get choked out in that short film. It's uh, it's it's not entirely pleasant, <laughs> but a, a fun short nonetheless. Um, we also asked for some Newcastle stories. Like I said, what stories that you want to see up here in the northeast? Uh, Kirsty says a comedy for a change. Avoid crime. TV and film is flooded with this genre. Uh, Jonathan says, well, actually, so this is something that already exists. He says, a woman I used to work with wrote novels about paranormal investigators who worked out of a base underneath Eldon Square. Now, you know me, I love subterranean stuff. I love tunnels and all that. So I would love to see that. Sarah said, a comedy that doesn't use the fact that we have Geordie accents and act tough and don't wear coats in winter as jokes. It would be nice to broaden out the comedy a little bit from that. And Jack also said... I always thought it would be a terrific spot for a Batman movie. Dean Street and the Quayside have such Gotham vibes. Oh, good shout. Mm. Absolutely. And I got talking to Jack a little bit further, and I said uh, I, I wanted Jimmy Nail as our as our Batman, as a kind of like grizzled aging Frank Miller type, uh, and Tim Healy as the Penguin. <laughs> Perfect. That would work. That would really, really work. <laughs> um... Do you guys have any favourite movies that have been filmed up in the north? Ever so slightly obsessed with the one everyone talks about, so I'll be brief. None other than Get Carter. But (laughs) in terms of um, signal boosting this evening, I just want to say a little bit more about a film Gabriel mentioned last time out, Stormy Monday. Late 80s Mike Figgis, Newcastle set film. At first glance, you can kind of think, well, it's this sort of journeyman, late 80s thriller. And this is true, but Roger Deakins was a cinematographer, so it's well worth two hours of your time for that Mm -hmm. alone. But it's actually quite a sexy movie, in a way. There's a lot of sensory feedback. There's smoky corridors and heaving bosoms and lips with lipstick being up. It's... Sensual, I think, mm. is the word we're looking Sensual for. Sensual Monday. Yes, indeed. Um, and I think Figgis's biggest film was probably Leaving Las Vegas. Um, yeah, he he does kind of neon and seedy beautifully. It's not essential, but it's a very respectable way to spend 110 minutes. Nice. I think it's on our old player, if anybody's curious, so... And Prime too, I believe. Oh, nice. Quality. So you've got options. What about you, Scott? To be honest, I've only seen Get Caught and Ghoul. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that I can think of sitting in Newcastle, or in the region, should I say. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. That's fun. Well, you know, they're both all right movies. Well, actually, funnily enough, I think I prefer Ghoul to Get Caught, or I'm a little bit lukewarm on Get Caught, or I'm really sorry. But uh... Wow. See, I Get still out. feel, I Get feel like I'm in it, Every time I walk over the high-level bridge. Mm. <laughs> Every single time without fail. And I used to flex so much that I worked in a building that stood where that car park had used to. Mm-hmm. I flexed about that for years. <laughs> uh, Graham also chipped in. He sent us a little message before the episode because this is his brainchild, this this little section. So he says, my nomination for a film with the Newcastle location is the 1976 horror mystery Schizo, starring Lynn Frederick, one of the many wives of Henry VIII. Uh, s- sorry, Peter Sellers. Oh. 
<laughs> I guess Peter Sellers must have married around. I did not know that. Um, the film starts with scenes of the Middlesbrough Transporter Bridge, then Newcastle's Quayside, which sees a guy who goes on to stalk the main character. But the rest of the film is all in London or somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, that's fine. Technicality. It registers. We'll have that. Can I just say that my favourite... Um, film set in the northeast or has been filmed in the northeast hasn't come out yet and i'm not allowed to talk about it so i'm just gonna shut up about that <laughs> um next year i might be able to say something more what stories would you like to see up here the guys a romantic comedy starring the 55-year-old equivalent of David Thewlis's character in Naked, played <laughs> by David Thewlis. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you already have that written. <laughs> but the last year in particular, yeah, it's just dystopia central, isn't it? Mm. When you're waiting at the race course for your jabs... And there's this sea of hundreds of people um, holding their arms with their masked faces. Um, Newcastle has looked very Soylent Green to me in the last year. Grey Street is basically Prague, so yeah, the sky is yeah. the limit. Can't believe they cut it out of Transformers 5, but there That's you go, eh? astonishing, isn't it's it? It's a shocker. What about you, Scott? Well, I was trying to think of more locations that could uh, exhibit the, the greatness of our region. Got things like Pencho Monument, Inch uh, mm. of the North, some real. Sunder where? Sorry? Sunderland. Sunderland. Yeah, so, uh, Land of the Sun. Isn't it, of course? Sorry, I forgot about that. Land of the, Land of the Sun. Well, I mean, it's, it's in the north of England, so it's really not. But my uh, <laughs> um, favourite location for a, for a film would be the, the tunnels under, under Newcastle. There you go. I, I think it's the Victoria Tunnel, I think one of them's called. Yeah. Yeah. And you do a good uh, short horror, horror in there, good short horror film. Maybe someone's been stalked in the in the in the vast expanse of tunnels. It's, to, to, to be fair, it's probably not vast in terms of what it can access, but uh, you, you could easily pass one bit of tunnel for multiple bit, bits of tunnel. I mean, come on, it's a tunnel. Um, I've heard that place is incredibly haunted as well, so you probably exactly. wouldn't need many actors. No, no, you just rely on the. And the moans and groans of the people who probably, who probably died down there. <laughs> <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to be macabre there, but uh, yeah, do a nice short film under there. Someone being yeah. followed around or something. So, you can have some, yeah. You could have someone mm. being stalked by an assassin across all mm. the different late show venues, so you'd be able to showcast Newcastle perfectly. Mm. Mm. A nice, a nice uh, horror crawl. Absolutely. I would love to see a Sopranos-style insight into the world of Mike Ashley, but without any of the shady dealings or you know depressing goings on at, at Sports Direct. I just want to see him go to therapy for an hour every week. <laughs> he is a bit of a Tony, right? I could be down for that. I could see him getting to care about ducks. <laughs> an exhibition park and oh no so not exhibition park what's the one that's lisa's park excuse me <laughs> but yeah thanks for your uh, suggestions there guys um yeah if, if you get any other picks that we've missed please do let us know um because you know we, we are quite a rich region for certain cinematic landscapes and stuff so yeah we should be proud of ourselves and there's so much being filmed up here now as well. You should get yourselves on the books of NE14.TV mm. if you aren't already, folks. Nice little bit of extra work for you there if you are so inclined. Can I start with my sections? Please do. Oh, cheers, guys. Uh, I'm going to start over at Shudder here uh, in the interest of tradition because... One of the main reasons I got Shudder initially was to watch the epic-length crowdfunded documentary on 80s horror In Search of Darkness. Shudder are also now streaming its sequel that deploys the same chronological format as the first film with these digressions to focus on a subgenre or a cult figure of the time. Uh, but this time, 
things get a little bit more specific, a little more niche. There's sometimes the sense that some of this stuff is leftover footage from the first film, but this one also has a really strong focus on Italian horror and on the work of Tom Savini. And it also lets some bizarre but very well-informed public figures weigh in. You've got WWE star Chris Jericho chiming in on flicks like uh, Mother's Day. You've got Slipknot frontman Corey Taylor running you through his uh, VHS rental picks from when he was a kid. You've even got Clancy Brown waxing lyrical. Yeah, exactly. Waxing lyrical about watching Sting play Victor Frankenstein, which is definitely a movie I want to get my eyeballs around. So... As ever with this franchise, there's a lot of unexpected treats alongside a lot of nostalgic stuff you already know. Again, it is over four hours long, but it doesn't really feel it. You can watch it like a TV show, it's pretty episodic. Shudder are actually still carving themselves a nice niche with this sort of comprehensive archive footage documentary because they've also started streaming Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, A History of Folk Horror. It's a similar approach to In Search of Darkness, lots of talking heads, lots of well edited archive footage including a little bit actually in Newcastle they uh, interviewed a, a lecturer from from Newcastle um, but the real USP here comes from the fact that the film goes international and then it uses that as its structural backbone there's very little strict chronology here but a lot more globe trotting to find out how each culture responded to their own origins through the format of folk horror some of the most interesting content here comes from films you might not even think of as folk horror. Look at Wake and Fright, a film that we've discussed before on the podcast, and a film that contains almost no allusions to Aboriginal culture, despite being set in the Australian outback. You don't think of it as a folk horror because of that absence, but it's the colonial subtext and the, the whiteness of the characters being unwelcome in this harsh environment that gives the film its, its folk horror texture. And it's full of readings like that throughout the film. So it's a really great documentary, very thorough and insightful and very diverse and a great gateway for anybody wanting to reach beyond the Wicker Man as their key folk horror text, I guess. <laughs> I guess the great thing about should I have an access to these films is that subscribers don't need to pay an insane amount of money uh, for the physical editions and imports. Uh, on these documentaries and honestly that's the main perk of arrow player as well they're a streaming service that offer you a very affordable alternative to shelling out on most of their deluxe editions because they often just put up their restorations online too one thing i was particularly glad to see among many and many other things that i don't really have time to talk about in this episode uh, but what i was impressed by was nobuhiko obayashi's anti-war trilogy Again, Nobuhiko Obayashi is a filmmaker we've covered here before. He directed Haosu, of which I am a fan, and Scott is categorically not. Uh, he also uh, directed Hanagatami, which is one of the most audaciously challenging movies I think I've ever seen. It's the tale of um, a bunch of Japanese misfit youths coming of age just before the dawn of World War II, mostly shot on green screens to increase the vivid waking dream feeling of the painful memories it, it provokes. Hanagatami is in this box set, preceded by Seven Weeks and Casting Blossoms to the Sky. So I'm both kind of excited and trepidatious about delving into the latter two there at some point in time. On the flip side, I positively can't wait to delve back into another film I finally caught up with recently on Arrow Player, and that is Abel Ferrara's King of New York, which I'm sure Scott mentioned on the podcast in the past. I know Laura is also a massive fan of Abel and Abel's work. Absolutely. And honestly, I, I'm kind of there with you now. I, I see the hype. I thoroughly enjoyed this film because it was not the film that I was expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be, you know, kind of a, a good classic mob story. And I got a surprisingly subversive and thoughtful treatment of what it means to have good intentions and a lot of money and for all that to mean nothing if you don't get that money legitimately um i was also wowed by the very very stacked cast of god tier actors and character actors just starting out in their careers and also christopher walken himself who just brings this really damaged live wire energy to a character that's at once very benevolent and also very very dangerous um i think it might be a masterpiece 
but I didn't really realize that until afterwards. So I think another another watch is required. Um, this got me hunting about for more Abel Ferrara movies on my streaming services. So imagine my delight to find his debut on movie. No, I'm not referring to his video nasty trailblazer, The Driller Killer. I'm referring to his 1976 major motion picture, Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy. Now, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> Scott Nelly fell out what? of his chair. <laughs> now, Laura, as one of the world's greatest Abel Ferrara fans, have you ever braved this? I'm afraid I haven't. I would dearly love to, and I, you best believe I will be scuttling off to Mubi shortly. <laughs> um, it, it's never been available for the longest time, but uh, yeah, um, that's a revelation, Simon. Thank well, you. Well, there you go. You are welcome. Um, I might partake too because it certainly can't be any worse than the last adult movie I watched for this podcast, which was The Unforgettable Bat Pussy. Um, <laughs> if all that ends up proving to be too much, I think I'll go back on movie to rewatch Teton, mm. which is once again a film that Laura and I share a massive mutual appreciation for. And one that surprises me with how weirdly wholesome and beautiful it is, despite being on the surface, at least, about banging Cadillacs and horrifying piercing, mutilation and fetish. It's all a thing, isn't it? And um, <laughs> that's just one of the many high-profile 2021 releases movie have managed to gobble up recently. Stands alongside Celine Siema's super low-key time travel movie, Petite Maman. Leos Carax and Sparks' demented rock opera Annette, and most recently, Ryosuke Hamaguchi's Oscar-winning Drive My Car. So I know I always say this, but there really is no better time than now to get yourself or your loved ones a movie subscription. So go for it, guys. <laughs> Do you want to chime in on Teton a little bit, Laura? Because you haven't really discussed it much on the podcast. It's rare that I see a film and I find myself thinking about it over and over again. Titan, I was thinking about it daily for literally months. I think it was three months between its cinema release and the LFF screening we saw in October. Mm -hmm. um, I was expecting something glorious and vile and, you know, people had used... Words like body horror and Cronenbergian. And yes, there is that. But to echo what Simon said, it isn't the film. Uh, it, it's executed beautifully. It really is. There's one perfect scene with something going through someone that, you know, I would have that large on a wall, this one perfect shot. But um, yeah, it's a laugh that. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, and I found I winced more. There's two horrifically uncomfortable scenes where I had to cover my eyes the first time. And yet it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It makes me sob. In fact, the second time I saw it, um, the Vincent Linden character, I managed about three seconds of his screen time. And then I started to sob. And that was yeah. me for basically the next 90 minutes. He and Agathe Roussel are incredible. Um, but, yeah, just... It's it's the most beautiful, nasty, ultra-violent, provocative film you will ever see. It's really good. Scott, I really hope you enjoy it if you ever watch it one day. And I'd love to see your take on it because... I know you like to go into like blind into movies quite a lot, and there Absolutely. is no better movie to go in blind to than Teton. Okay, I'll uh, Absolutely none. I'll keep an eye out. I'll keep an eye out for it. It's very, very special. The last film that moved me to this extent would have been You Were Never Really Here. Mm, yeah, similar raw, raw vibes. That wasn't a Julia de Cornau pun there, it's just... <laughs> That's that's the whole thing, isn't it? It's just raw. <laughs> but what about Annette, Scott? Have you seen Annette? No. <laughs> I have not. I watched Annette again recently uh, with my mother. Um, I thought she would enjoy it very much. 
and she was completely split on it. She kind of hated the first half. Then when the uh, main kind of story-flipping incident occurs in the middle of the film, she began to get invested so much that she was incredibly moved by the ending, which didn't land for me first time, but did on a rewatch. So it's a, a very, very eccentric, strange movie. Um, I just love Adam Driver's terrible, awful, evil stand-up in, in that film as well. I think that's a a masterpiece of writing and performance right there. It's another one that's very difficult to forget about when you've seen it. You find you're thinking about it for days afterwards. And I'm really excited to see the esteem it's going to be held in 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if it'll still split people as much. Mm-hmm. Interesting fact, though. Russell and Ron Mail, Sparks themselves, uh, I discovered the other night by looking at this uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme Blu-ray that I bought recently called Knock Off, which is a Hong Kong action movie about counterfeit jeans starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, directed by Sue Hark, uh, actually scored by Russell and Ron Mail. Wow. And it's pretty much the only other high-profile movie that they scored other than Annette. <laughs> so you've got a 1997 Jean-Claude movie <laughs> just with the Spark soundtrack. And the answer will be something really beautiful like nobody else ever asked us. That will be why it was that film. You know what? I'm I'm going to see if there's anything on the extras about it because I think it's going to be uh I think it's going to be quite quite a sight. <laughs> I know he's got some bombs in his jeans at some point. I don't know if he's wearing the jeans while they have the bombs in them. That could prove to be very interesting or if it's just the jeans that are at stake, but uh Many questions around this movie. Shall report back. <laughs> Laura, I believe you have been warming up to give us three quite significant recommendations for the end of this podcast. Yeah, it's all a bit bleak at the moment, isn't it? And I don't yeah. say that to trivialise anything. Um, so when things are bleak, do we just go a bit further down and then work it out from the bottom back up? So... Strap in, guys. Indeed. Right, so BBC iPlayer, we have 99 Homes with Michael Shannon and Andrew Garfield. And Shannon is this monstrous yet seductive streak of waz. And it's uh, <laughs> tear your own face off with discomfort watch, really. Um, he's just this absolute beastly... Uh, realtor they call estate agents don't they in America mm -hmm. um, who forecloses on homes and forecloses on Andrew Garfield's home which he shares with his son and his mum played by Laura Dern I must report with great consternation surely there's only 15 years between her and Garfield for a start mm -hmm. that's appalling casting isn't it um it's a nasty, nasty Andrew film. Garfield does look very young, though, so... He does. And what really sells this film to me is he is pushed into progressively more evil acts. Mm -hmm. um, but he always looks like he's about to cry. I don't say that to denigrate him. I think I'm probably trying to say he's soulful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. I've never seen him be gleefully evil. I really, really like... Andrew Garfield, but I particularly like that he's so pretty and still makes these quite uncomfortable films. A big fave of mine of the last few years was um, Under the Silver Lake. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so 99 Homes, similarly, very uncomfortable watch, but when there are such excellent people doing this, you know, you can't look away. Before you move on from Garfield, though, you say he doesn't play gleefully evil. Uh, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Mainstream, oh. directed by uh, Gia Coppola, so one of the Coppola clan, um, in which he plays a, a completely obnoxious, evil uh, social media influencer. Uh, the film got terrible reviews, um, but apparently Garfield is just like such an unbelievable mega performance that uh, maybe he's trying to be a bit more... Uh, Outside of his comfort zone. I always enjoy watching him, so I would love to see that. 
Yeah, yeah. I first saw him in Red Riding in about 2007, which was a Channel 4 adaptation of a series of David Peace novels um, set around the time of the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, He was magnificent. He and Rebecca Hall were together in it. And they both looked far too young. But he, yeah, I've, I've actively looked for him since about 2007. That's how much he's impressed me. But, um, yeah, this film, horrifically uncomfortable, but you should watch it because they are excellent. And Clancy Brown and his excellent face pops up too. I forgot about that. Nice. It's, I, love, I love the movie, I just couldn't remember Clancy Brown was in it. I never forget about Clancy Brown's face, <laughs> but that's another story. While we're still on the iPlayer, 1983's Educating Rita is there. Now, Michael Caine performances get lost sometimes, I think, amongst blonde, blue-shirted gangster Caine, or latterly Christopher Nolan film Caine. But this is a Michael Caine performance. The, he and Julie Walters are absolutely wonderful. She's this hairdresser in her mid-twenties, seeking to give herself more substance via an education. He's a broken, sad man in his late forties who's self-medicating with alcohol. I remember seeing this film when I was very, very young. I, me being about five or six, coincided with VHS really taking off. So I probably saw bits and pieces of this film and then didn't properly compute it until I guess I was about 12 or 13. And I was curious going back. I thought it would have dated uncomfortably. But the one feature that sets it squarely in 1983 is this really overpowering synth score, um, Mm. which I would change or certainly turn right down in the mix. But it's very beautiful. It's I don't think it's wide of the mark to say it's a wholesome film. Mm. And it's aged beautifully. Uh, some of it is horrifying, but it's well worth your time. It's a really sweet film. Educating Rita from 1983. Mm. If I haven't put you off with my fiercely uncomfortable talk... We can skedaddle over to all four for With Nail and I. Now, I've kind of touched on this world before when I mentioned how to get ahead in advertising. So Bruce Robinson and Richard E. Grant made two extraordinary films together in 1987. And this is the one of legend, With Nail and I. Um, I feel that it's so spoken of you could almost be quite contrary and not even want to like it based upon how can it live up to the legend these two actors drink their own body weight and then some disappear up to the lakes go on holiday by mistake um for me it's an iconic magnificent film but yeah i think if i were discovering it now i might be irritated by the legend and i might be predisposed to be contrary but everybody should watch it at least once in their life so that's on all four for the next 22 days lovely it might finally be the time for me to watch that now (laughs) been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and it's still at the top of my list of shame I'd thought it was going to be a big moment sharing it with Teen. It was a very quiet, modest Saturday afternoon during the first lockdown. I wasn't even present for all of it. I was in and out of the house. Then it was on TV the following New Year's Eve, and it was Teen who declared that's what we were watching. Oh, there you go. Subtly worked its magic on them. Yeah, yeah. I'm very, I'm very pleased to report The mantle has been passed down. You're a good mother, Laura. Thank you. I try. (laughs) Lovely stuff. Well, I guess on that note, is is that everything that everybody wanted to contribute to this episode? Yes. It's a nice note to end on. I think so. I think so indeed. Yeah. Well, it's been absolutely lovely. Been getting back to our regular programming. 
let's not leave it too long before we do another. I, I, know, I know we've all had kind of busy beginnings of 2022. Uh, I know mine in particular might keep getting busy. Hopefully it'll keep getting busy, but... <laughs> Scott and I will not leave it six months next time, Simon. I forget how recently you were in the saddle with Gabriel, but uh... <laughs> yeah, that was end of end of January. So yes, yeah, still a, a grossly long time. <laughs> but yes, thank you so much for uh, getting back in the saddle with me tonight, guys, and thank you, the listener, for listening. Uh, once again, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Invasion of the Podcasters. That is two Ds in Poddy. And uh, yeah, thank you very much as always. Good night for now. Good night, everyone. Bye for now. Bye.